when we look at the history of the school, or the history of any institution, we can recover the motivations behind the decisions that have been taken over time. The decisions to appoint people, the decisions to teach one way or another, the decisions to include one thing or another, either in the research program or in the pedagogy. And looking at the history allows us to find clarity in our own decisions in the present day. You might think that university degrees are fairly static cultural products that change slowly and in line with the often lethargic institutions they're created in. But university degrees perhaps reflect the world back to us, just as much as they seek to shape the world around us. In this sense, university degrees are firmly located in society. They're a cultural product of society. They ebb and flow with the times, they adapt and change to suit the current social and political mood, and they're always seeking to be on the frontiers of the latest ideas. And sometimes these ideas need to be challenged. I'm talking to Andrew Leach, Lee Stickles, Daniel Ryan, and Catherine Larson about their book, Sydney School, Formative Moments in Architecture, Design and Planning at the University of Sydney. The book's edited by Andrew and Lee, Daniel and Catherine have written chapters, and we've pulled out some short excerpts to tell you about the secret life of the architecture degree at the University of Sydney. And it's a story that goes in some strange directions. I'm Andrew Leach, I'm Professor of Architecture here at the University of Sydney. So architecture's been important to the University of Sydney ever since its foundation in 1850, when Edmund Blackett's fine neo-Gothic buildings occupied its core and continue to, uh, continue to remain there. But when Blackett's son Cyril first started teaching courses in architectural history and construction in the 1880s, he was asking in another kind of way how architecture might belong in the university. It wasn't long before those outside the university were questioning what was happening inside the university. By the 1880s and 90s, newspapers were publishing editorials and reporting on lectures that suggested that the university could be doing more to support the quality of building in the city, uh, buildings that didn't fall down for one thing, um, but also buildings that were well composed and decorated. When Wilkinson, Leslie Wilkinson, was first appointed to the Chair of Architecture uh, here at Sydney, the first Australian Chair of Architecture in 1918, um, this was a victory for the architecture profession of New South Wales, but it was a victory that was decades in the making. And if you're listening in from or work in a university, you know what comes next. A long series of university, faculty and school restructures that seems to continue ad infinitum. What began as a Department of Architecture, which was established on Wilkinson's arrival, was in 1920 established as a faculty in the wake of a university... Sydney was rapidly changing in the 1920s. And we pick up the discussion with Daniel Ryan. I'm from Architecture and uh, I direct the Sustainable Design Programme. So tell us what's happening in society at the time in the 20s. Okay, so in the 20s, Sydney now has a population of about 900,000 and that has effectively doubled from where it was at the time of Federation 20 years before. So one of the things is that Sydney's really industrialised. You've got probably the largest industrial centre in the Southern Hemisphere happening and that's all happened pretty rapidly. And people are kind of questioning about what's it like to live there. So one approach is that architecture would beautify the city and in a way 
deal with the kind of visual pollution of um, industrialization and in a sense civilize the newly federated white settler society that Australia thought it should become. Mm. But the other side of it was that I guess the question was which was more important, architecture as a civic art and kind of um, fixing up the city uh, from being a kind of convict uh, settlement to an industrial one to something that had illusions of grandeur. And then on the other hand, what about the technical competence that the profession had promised? Because at this time, architecture became effectively a closed shop. They'd managed to get gain registration, 1921, and education and registration kind of go hand in hand. Largely, the argument was that it was a means to protect the public from unscrupulous practices, in the same way as you'd had medicine protecting the public from quacks and that side of things. So uh, there is this kind of tension at play, and, and we see it actually play out in the school. Mm. So how, how does this fit into the history of the school? Right, so the course is set up within the Faculty of Science, largely for pragmatic reasons, and in a way engineering was in science too, so there was a, a lectureship in architecture that had been there for a bit. But there was a new push to get course in architecture, and Leslie Wilkinson joins in 1918, and he sort of promotes a vision of architecture as a civic art, and kind of changes the orientation of the initial idea of the course. So one that's much more focused on studio, much more focused on drawing, brings in Norman Carter and other people who are quite well known in terms of stained glass and, and that and drawing. And the legacy of that, 30, 40 years later, you have people like Lloyd Rees attached to the school and actually today the tin sheds and a kind of a strong artistic bent to the school. But on the other hand, a second part of the kind of regulation of the profession was that the government would provide funds for traveling scholarships. Now, these weren't just like 10 pounds. This was 400 pounds, which you could actually buy a worker's home for that cost. It was worth about half a professor's salary. So that would actually get you to London. Um, it was seen as going home. And then because the best student or was seen to be the best student from either Sydney University or the Sydney Technical College, which is now UNSW, would get it, the government and its guardians, who are the Board of Architects, saw that they had a role to play to ensure that the person was going to be of fitting standard and that, that they would get their money's worth. The architecture degree was open to men and women from the start something that was a little bit controversial at the time. The travelling scholarship was also open to men and women. And this is where we see some of the broader social dynamics coming into play, in this case, between the Board of Architects and the university. The issue was, was that the Board of Architects, who were there uh, from the government, they saw the huge amount of money that this was costing, and they, from their point of view, they were looking at a kind of what the return and investment would be like. And so what's interesting as a historian is to actually see what could be said at the time and what people had no qualms about saying. Um, obviously, all men uh, were the people who were choosing who would be seen as best. The university nominated nominate who they thought their best student was. And in 1926... Or was it 27? I think 26. University of Sydney put forward Marjorie Hudson, um, a female student, for the award. And this really set the cat among the pigeons. 
And the document that we kind of have from the Board of Architects minutes effectively gives every single battle that women have had to fight in terms of a sense of equality in the profession. It starts out with the opinion that women were best at placed at home. A woman would be extremely likely to get married. A young woman in the second year of the diploma course at the college had become engaged. Some of the people on the board were questioning whether, whether women should even be in the profession or in schools. The practice of architecture in all its phases could not be carried out by a woman. This might be phases of architecture where a woman could take her part, but architecture was essentially a man's job. It effectively ends as a rant where it says that well, a woman will never be a famous architect. It was most unfortunate that a woman had been admitted to the schools of architecture and to the profession. It was unlikely that a woman would become a famous architect. So on the one hand, Hudson's drawings are absolutely beautiful and re, you know you can see the kind of the influence and emphasis that someone like Wilkinson would have placed pedagogically but when you actually see when someone's put up for an award that sense of actually everyone has the right to go to university but certain people gain the privileges that kind of comes out and for me also looking at the document when we talk about the development of modernism, modernity is so much based on mobility. And so the question we see this is what happens when mobility is denied? Mm. It's a battle we're still fighting today. Yeah, which today is incredibly contemporary because there have been so few women awarded the Pritzker Prize, which is like the Nobel for architecture. And there's a whole campaign for Denise Scott Brown, who with Robert Venturi has kind of done great work. But Venturi was the one in the 80s, or early 90s who alone was awarded the Pritzker Prize, although the two have really practiced together the whole time. So um, yeah, that was one of those unusual finds where you're not actively looking for that, but while going through other documents, you actually kind of uncover a whole other story along the way. Let's fast forward to the 1960s and 70s counterculture movements and the ideas around free speech, civil rights, feminism and anti-war dissent radically changed what was happening inside the university. Lee Stickles. Architecture schools around the world are also impacted by this broader dissent. They're often part of it. So in, in, in Paris, the architecture school is heavily involved. You know, the posters are being produced in the school. Um, at Harvard, it was the architecture students who got involved in the anti-Vietnam protests. And you know, it was an architecture student that came up with the kind of red raised fist symbol for the protest and produced the t-shirts that everyone was wearing. And there's also this connection in terms of like at Columbia, a big part of the student occupations was unhappiness with the way the Columbia University was starting to encroach on surrounding neighbourhoods. So it's urban development, you know, this gymnasium that was going to be built in um, Harlem. At Yale, there's a whole lot of upset around the kind of the failure, it's in the, to be the failure of kind of urban redevelopment processes in New Haven. So architecture and, and planning, young professionals who are being educated, they're seeing it as very directly related to what they are going to, to do post-graduation, how their professions are going to, to um, act and, and build cities and the effects that'll have. Architecture students, architecture schools around the world are, are 
part of this or can you know, have a concern here. Yeah. That speech comes to mind from a U.S. campus where that guy says, we've got to put our hands upon the gears and upon the... That's Mario Savio. Yeah. Um, there comes a time. When the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part, you can't even passively take part, and you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop, and you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. It sounds very Deleuzean, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, So that might have been, was that 1964? But, so, so but the, the free speech movement is a little bit earlier, but yeah, the momentum has developed and into the 70s, you know, that, that's not unconnected with the emergence of gay liberation movement and, and second wave feminism. Yeah. Mm. So architecture schools and students in a way are turning their own critical gaze back onto themselves and onto their discipline and even onto their own institutions, how the institutions are acting in the environment. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that happens in Sydney as well. So at the University of Sydney, there is this growth in student activism, student protest around ideas about direct democratic participation in in the university, also related to issues like civil rights Mm. and anti-Vietnam protesters, anti-apartheid protests come in a bit later. So that's all happening. That's a context. There are experiments with free universities um, undertaken by University of Sydney Academics in Redfern. And what sort of ideas come out of this school? And in this school, the students are not unconnected to that broader set of uh, movements and and counterculture. And also similarly turning, as you've sort of suggested, the gaze back on their own profession and the education that they're receiving. And so there is a growing dissatisfaction with the degree program you know, this is not all students, of course, mm. but there's there's a fairly vocal set of students who are, are pretty unhappy. Are there any examples of things that students actually did, any little projects or any student interventions? So the, the major one is a strike in July of 1972, which shuts down the school for two weeks. It begins with a sort of walkout of lectures and a discussion amongst staff and students. I think they walked over to Victoria Park, sat down under the trees, and it was about 160 out of 220 students. So it was a majority of students there, 15 to 20 staff involved. And the students agreed they weren't going to attend lectures and they wanted the Bachelor of Architecture, the degree remade. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So they're sitting under the tree and then what happens? Uh, well, they, as I say, they decide that they're not going to go back to lectures and they spend two weeks reassessing their education system. <laughs> they seem to, from what I can tell from the, uh, the kind of archival materials that, that I've managed to access via some very generous you know, alumni, they had a real facility for um, organisation and you might say bureaucracy. <laughs> uh, they set up a whole bunch of committees to look at different aspects of in the course and they had students and and staff uh, involved in these little committees, working groups, and they sort of had a structure where these groups, you know, workshopped things and came up with propositions about different ways of teaching and assessing and fed that back to the larger group and eventually they 
they came up with a proposition for a, a degree program that had a kind of explosion in the variety of subjects that students could take in the degree. The uh, introduction of uh, lecturers from other disciplines like social sciences and, and so on, increasing numbers of you know people, you could say, from outside architecture teaching into architecture and an increased level of kind of self-assessment in units. Quite, it was a compromise solution in the end, but the changes that they managed to get through are still quite amazing. Mm. Sounds amazing. I think we should design all our curriculum <laughs> like that. What are the lessons moving forward for us today? We, we seem to be in a very different spot right now. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think, okay, so at the core of these demands and this reshaping of the degree by these students was this idea of kind of relevance for architecture. So they wanted to understand architecture as position in a broader context you know, in society. And this is a period where in a lot of architecture programs, it's starting to talk about architects and others as environmental designers. And so they, they really wanted to, they thought, you know, students really need to understand all those contexts. Mm. And I guess that that would tap back into all of those debates that were happening in society post-colonialism, decolonization, gender issues, class issues, all of these are foundational ideas for what you think architecture might do. Yeah, yeah. That gets folded back into a kind of self-critique in architecture. You know, what is our place in producing these negative conditions? How, how is it that architects, architecture can be more liberating, be more progressive? It wasn't just social movements that shaped the degree program. As is often the case, the ideas within the Academy of Architecture more broadly were also important. Catherine Larson and Julie Willis write about the work of Jennifer Taylor and the emergence of the so-called Sydney School. So the chapter focuses to some extent on this historian Jennifer Taylor who through her writings and in particular a book that was called An Australian Identity, Houses for Sydney, 1953 to 63. Through that book and through the collection of architects that she assembled in that book and some of whom were actually kind of different, right? There's um, Sydney Anchor. She included Harry Seidler, who, who we would not always sort of intuitively associate with something like the Sydney School. Richard Johnson, who's the dean and the head of school, he encourages Jennifer Taylor in her investigation of these architects in this book. And then he also is one of the architects that's identified in this book. So speaking very simply, what we would think of in terms of the Sydney School, Peter Johnson, Ken Woolley, Bruce Rickard, Peter Muller, and many architects that get associated with building, well, in this case, they were all houses, houses that kind of feel a little bit cosier <laughs> um, out of materials that were, say, recycled bricks. So inexpensive. So in that way, it links into those ideas about modernism that you're trying to do good design for everyone, in this case, by using locally available inexpensive materials. But also because those bricks are associated with this place, um, sometimes things like stone got incorporated, local stone. There's a sense through the buildings that they are more powerfully identified with this location. And that's why Taylor calls them the Sydney School. 
What's the legacy of this school, if we want to call it a school? The legacy. Oh, let's see. Of the Sydney school. It's a great question. (laughs) It's a really great question. I think that one can see why in this region, let's say our architectural history and our traditions, to some extent are inherited from, you know, Europe and North America. You can see why it's important to think, um, gee, (laughs) you know, all these people are doing these interesting things, but what should we do in this place? How should we attune our buildings in terms of materials, building techniques, modes of inhabitation in this particular climate, ways of adjusting our buildings to, you know, the particular kind of light that we have? You know, in all sorts of ways, there was a very specific topography that these buildings responded to in Sydney. So how should we build physically in this place? And I think all those questions are vital in terms of the development of thinking about architecture in this city. So I see it in much more of a continuous way that in many ways that kind of extension of ideas that we associate with modernism, of which the Sydney School, if you want to call it that, forms a kind of moment. I would say that's just continuing. Is the, is the architecture itself the questioning? So is the drawing and the building a process of questioning modernism? Yes, I think in, yeah, in good architecture, absolutely. Yeah, that there's an internalising of the questions and those things are up for grabs. You're thinking, what should this be built out of? How should a house feel? I mean, that's a big question for modernism, isn't it? How should we live? (laughs) And so you get these sequence of different answers to that question. And this particular moment is saying, well, we need to feel as if we're located in this place. Somehow the natural topography and landscape's important. Somehow the local building materials, but also building traditions are important because that's how we can build things economically in this area. So I don't talk about it too much in the chapter, but one of the things that's that Taylor mentions in her book are all these project homes that are designed by architects using that sense of economy of means and how might you make well-designed but economical homes for everyone. So in that sense, you've got the continuity of the ideas associated with modernism, but appearance is very different. Excellent. Everyone will have to read your chapter. What's it called? It's called The Sydney School. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a special five-part series to celebrate the centenary, the School of Architecture, Design and Planning at the University of Sydney. Subscribe to the podcast to hear more interviews. The links are on our website at cityroadpod.org.